listening to the podcast of ideas. You're about to listen to a recording from the Belfast Battle of Ideas, an event that took place in the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast on the 26th of March 2022, in partnership with Imagine Belfast Festival and the Academy of Ideas. We began the day with a discussion called Snowflakes or Revolutionaries? Free Speech on Campus, with speakers including Suzanne Witten, a lecturer at Queen's University Belfast and author of the book A Republican Theory of Free Speech, Critical Civility. There was Ryan Hoey, a politics graduate and a former events officer of The Literific at Queen's University Belfast, and Anaya Falarin Imam, a GB News journalist and presenter and founder of the Equiano Project. In the chair was me, Ella Whelan, and I began by asking Ryan what he thought the state of free speech was at university, good or bad, picking up on his time with a debating society that had several run-ins with free speech issues. Uh, Free speech in in Northern Ireland is in a better place than it is in the rest of the UK. I think when you live in in a a province run by, you know, socially regressive homophobes and unrepentant terrorists, I think the Overton window is sort of uh, slightly slightly wider. In terms of the university itself, um, you know, I think Queen's is actually fairly good at allowing for open debate. The SU at Queen's does have a no-platforming list, but that really only pertains to the SU building, so it basically means that if you invite a no-platform speaker along, they can't go into the gift shop at the SU building and buy overpriced goods. Um, and you could, but you can host them on the rest of the campus, uh, any no-platform speakers. So as Ella mentioned, I was the events officer for uh, QB Literific, which is the university's uh, debating society, and built up um, sort of new series uh, called Lit Talks and Great Debates um, to sort of give students the opportunity to engage with and debate alongside sort of prominent speakers. Um, we don't really host anyone without the opportunity for them to be challenged. So the first um, experience I had with calls for no platforming was when we invited along uh, Mary Lou McDonald, the president of Sinn Féin, and a few sort of unionist friends of mine kicked up a fuss and said, well, she'll, she's just coming along to sort of spout Republican propaganda sort of un, unchallenged. What actually happened was that we had sort of a two-hour grilling from members of the society. And at the end, you could actually, she was overheard going, Oh dear Jesus Christ, because she actually got scrutinised on her views. Um, In terms of the sort of ones where we had sort of widespread backlash um, for some of the debates and and speakers that we had, the first was a debate uh, on the motion, this house regrets the decriminalisation of abortion, um, to coincide with the one year anniversary of that legislation being passed. And um, Project Choice, um, the sort of students' union pro-choice group, said that the bodily autonomy of women and pregnant people should not be up for debate. Um, And the student publication, The Tab, sort of wrote a hit piece in which they entitled, QUB Debate in Society of Problematically Platformed Anne Widdicombe, in which they argued that her inclusion in the debate was reckless and put vulnerable people on campus at risk. The second instance was um, when we had loyalist commentator Jamie Bryson um, speak at our no platforming debate. And there the society was sort of uh, denounced as sectarian, um, seeking controversy for controversy's sake. Um, former members called on the council to resign. And we were also sort of subject to more sort of um, nasty personal abuse. Um, 
in that instance, we sort of put out a statement clarifying that we're not just trying to seek to cause controversy for controversy's sake. And, you know, the society's rules actually do forbid people from using sectarian language in debate. So, you know, any concerns about whether or not Jamie Bryson is sectarian, he wasn't going to be sort of spouting sectarian nonsense in, in our debate. But, crucially, we weren't going to rescind the invitation. So in terms of, based on those experiences, what is my view about sort of free speech on campus? I think um, there are certain loudmouths on, on campus who um, do have a sort of worrying um, aversion to, to free speech. And, you know, sort of student organisers like myself, uh, well, not anymore, but was, uh, do sort of worry that if they invite controversial speakers, they will face a, a backlash. And it, from experience, it is very stressful. That week in which we had such a huge backlash to uh, Jamie Bryson speaking at our debate, I think I aged by like a, free, a, a few years. Um, but I think we do need students who are willing to put up with the backlash because I'm of the view that the backlash is going to happen no matter what. Um, and that, that we just need students in those positions to actually stand up to it. Um, you know, would I invite uh, Jamie Bryson again? Probably not, not because of the backlash, but because I just don't think he really added anything of value to the debate. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately that is what should determine whether, you know, um, students platform someone. It should be, do they think they will make for a good discussion, not fear of the backlash, basically. Okay, great. Thanks, Ryan. That's very interesting. I mean, Suzanne, if I can throw it to you then as someone who um, sees a different side of the university as a staff member and um, uh, an academic rather than the student, you know, the, do you think that there has been, I mean, do, what, what do you think about what Ryan said, but also do you think that there is a particular... People talk about the fact that in the past, free speech on campus was a, it was a different kind of thing and that today you have um, millennials or Gen Zers, whatever they are, who are just all kind of a bit wet and, and, that, and that's the explainer for why you have these sort of um, instances of calls for bans and things like that. Is that unfair or is there, is there a kind of generational element to it or what's your perspective from a staff member as well? I think it's super interesting what Ryan has said. Um, apparently, I, I taught him a while ago. Um, I think I yes, we have that. a lecturer and yeah. a student here. So. <laughs> I feel really old. Um, so I am. Uh, first of all, I, I really agree with what Ryan said about the the way in which Northern Ireland is perhaps a different sort of context to the rest of the UK in terms of all this free speech stuff on campus. I think that perhaps people in Northern Ireland have a thicker skin when it comes to kind of thrashing it out on really difficult issues. It's just something that we're all surrounded with all the time. I don't know if anyone in the audience would agree with that. It seems to be a different sort of um, culture to what's going on you know, across the water. And I also have had the experience of being an undergrad at Queen's. Um, I started there in 2009 and did my my undergrad, my master's, my PhD there, and you know now of course I'm working there. And in terms of whether I've seen changes in that time, you know it's not a huge um, uh, length of time. I have to note, uh, maybe you know ten years or so. Um, and I don't I don't quite know. I think that when I was an undergrad, there were quite a few. Radicals, as Ryan says, there's always going to be a few people in a cohort that are speaking louder than others, and that doesn't really come from a particular left 
um, or right side of the spectrum. It comes from all sides of the political spectrum. There's always going to be very politically active people. Um, when it comes to the classroom, which is really interesting because I've been on both sides of it, I mean, uh, you know, Ryan, again, has probably had experience of this. In tutorials, things can get really heated when it comes to political issues, uh, when it comes to um, orange or green issues or Irish history sort of topics, but also when it comes to the kind of philosophical topics that I teach. So I teach political philosophy and ethics, and so we do touch on those really difficult things um, like abortion, uh, like race, like uh, issues surrounding gender. And I've always found students to be very open uh, to having a discussion or to having uh, a debate. And, uh, you know, when that discussion uh, gets a bit heated, it's, it's my role to kind of bring it back down uh, to the topic, to the readings. Um, and that seems to work just fine. And, you know, the odd case where my colleagues have had to deal with um, you know, abusive language in, in the classroom, uh, you know, what they tend to do is, you know, calm it down, change the subject, and then kind of get the students to talk to one another afterwards and kind of, you know, mediate in that sense. So there is a way of, of dealing with these issues, which I think is really important. You know, we have to teach these topics, um, but in a way that's respectful um, towards everyone, so that, that's my experience. I wanted to ask you to just, I know I'm, it's incredibly crass to try and get you to compress a whole book into one description, <laughs> but if you could tell us about this critical civility thing, because just I was interested in it as another way of looking at the question of free speech. Yeah, um, I'll try and do it really briefly. So um, when I started my research on free speech, I found that a lot of theorists, liberal theorists, and the general public, um, had a particular view of free speech, which was about non-interference, right? Which is about, um, I have free speech to the extent that no one prevents me from saying what I want to say or censors me and that the state doesn't intervene with me, that sort of thing. And any sort of discussions about free speech after that are about figuring out where those limits lie. You know, when can someone censor me or step in and uh, stop me from saying what I, I want to say? Um, and I thought that didn't really uh, get to the, the root of what was going on whenever we communicate with one another. Speech is really relational in nature. It depends on the kind of context that we're in. It depends on the kind of authority that speakers have. Um, and in terms of you know theoretical frameworks, republicanism uh, as a political theory has lots of really important tools w w which we can go to, to to examine that from a different perspective, in particular non-domination. So how can we ensure that all speakers um, enjoy non-domination, have their voices heard, and also aren't dominated by the state and by other institutions whenever they want to say what they want to say? So that's it in a nutshell. It's fascinating. Thank you, Suzanne. All right, Inaya, um, I mean, both Suzanne and Ryan, but obviously particular to Queen's University Belfast, and that's and we've already had the proviso about things being different in Northern Ireland. But more broadly, I mean, they've painted a, I'd say, a relatively uh, easygoing picture of campus life, which is that, you know, even though difficulties in the classroom, they're manageable, even though people might do hit pieces on you, so what? I'm wondering whether there is a there is a different picture going on in, on whether you want to expand on maybe some of the ch more challenging aspects of um, campus censorship. Yeah. Um, 
thank you for inviting me uh, to this really interesting discussion. I think there's a, a lot of what has been said that I agree with. I think, I guess where I would disagree and where I think it becomes more difficult um, broadly in the UK, but actually also in, in the broader Anglosphere world, is how I think a lot of institutions have um, become complicit within the censorship going on. So there's always going to be you know, student radicals and there's always going to be um, back and forths that go on. But the way in which institutions, particularly in education and higher education, further education, have um, adopted seemingly a kind of new moral ethic, and that new moral ethic is this idea of safetyism, and it's often um, institutionalised, this idea that students are, are vulnerable, um, having loads of you know, mental health issues, um, are, are very sensitive and need to be protected. And this is prioritised over open dialogue, uh, freedom of speech, um, and a kind of rigorous intellectual exchange. And I think that, for example, when we've seen a lot of the skirmishes that have gone on um, in some of the universities um, across the UK, I think what's been really striking is, has been the kind of institutional response. So, for example, with Kathleen Stock, uh, who was the, the gender-critical feminist that was forced to resign after a campaign of intimidation, very few of her colleagues actually stepped in. Um, and when, for example, Rod Liddell in, in Durham was, uh, there was a kind of backlash from a minority of students, uh, very few, again, academics kind of stepped in. So for a lot of young people who uh, may be interested in free speech, wanting to have a, a rigorous exchange of ideas, they often find that they're coming up against um, an institution that may not necessarily back them and actually will, will um, support the premises of various different ideas that, that challenge the idea that students are able to engage with a wide range of perspectives. And I think that, I think perhaps, because what's been touched upon is the difference between uh, uh, Northern Ireland and, and, and the rest of the UK, I think perhaps in the UK, more broadly, the, the subjects of, of race and uh, uh, LGBT uh, rights and so on has become much more politicised. Um, and so I think a lot of the, the, the conflicts seem to centre around these ideas. And I think perhaps because those ideas, I think, coalesce very quite strongly with a lot of these ideas of sensitivity. So if you are, it is, it, it, there is a kind of growing and dominant idea that if you are a, uh, an ethnic minority, uh, that you need to be protected from certain hateful speech and that, you know, history is a particular way um, and what's necessary is that, you know, it needs to be reinterpreted to make you feel more comfortable. Similarly, with um, when it comes to kind of uh, gender and, uh, and uh, trans issues. Uh, and so I think that, that the hot topics and the skirmishes around subjects that have become very politicised, um, and I think that the problem is that institutional cowardice. And so young people that do want to do things, they often find that they're not just coming up against students, they're coming up against their institutions. And I think that that makes it much more difficult. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I want to come out to the audience um, in a second, but just one last question for me from something that Anaya has thrown up, which is, you know, if you look at, so if you take Queens for, as an example, because it's just up the road, um, in 2013, the Students' Union banned blurred lines. I remember when all that stuff was happening, that was when I was at um, university. And because this song that is a particularly crass song about um, women wanting it and all that, the rest of it, that lots of students' unions across the UK banned because it was deemed to be encouraging rape culture. Um, there was the sort of infamous instance in 2015 where uh, the vice chancellor of the university at the time in Queens 
cancelled a conference on um, the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre. And one of the, partly for security reasons, as is quoted, but also the thing that caused a lot of controversy was that the universities and the VC cited that it was to do with the university's danger, potential danger to the university's reputation. So, you know, whatever might have been talked about at that conference, with some lots of very esteemed academics, by the way, not that that would, should necessarily make a difference, um, could have brought the university's reputation into repute. So that was deemed to be, you know, a, an attack on academic freedom. And then as Ryan says, you know, in, uh, in 2019, there was um, the pro-life society has been kind of restricted by the students' union um, for, I read here a quote, for failing to represent the spirit of the student union, whatever that is. So, I mean, is there a, is there a change to all of you um, ab about universities no longer, if they were ever, no longer being places where politics happen? Is it, is it become a place where students are, as Anaya was kind of describing, get to have a, a nice time and don't feel particularly, you know, feel safe, the emphasis on feeling safe in your studies, and maybe you go out and you might have sex and you might have a bit of fun, but in general it's a kind of, it's not very like home, nothing bad happens to you. Or uh, as opposed to it being a place of intellectual rigour but also challenge, and maybe, you know, you hear uh, someone from a political party that freaks you out or you agree with? Is, all of, is that kind of challenging space of a university gone? Um, Suzanne, maybe I'll start with you. Just kind of some brief comments and then we'll go out to the audience. Um, I think that well, one thing that's really interesting about cases where uh, a student group organisation have uh, tried to exert power over particular uh, things, such as the Blurred Line song or um, cases where they tried to ban a certain speaker. I think that what they're doing in many cases is uh, exercising autonomy as a student group. So that's something that's good about student organisations, that they get the opportunity to try out what it's like to run an organisation. And sometimes they're going to make mistakes, right? Um, and I think the, you know, the job of the university, because it's still these groups are still part of the university, is to ensure they're able to exercise autonomy, but without infringing upon the, the, the wider um, free speech culture of the university. So they should be able to have some say over who they invite to their own particular societies, for example. Um, but the extent to which they have veto power over the rest of the university, um, you know, it will be up to the university to prevent that from happening, I think. Um, so so that's, that's my thought on that. Okay, lovely. Thanks. Inaya, any thoughts? Yeah, and I think that's perhaps what increasingly hasn't been done. Um, I think universities have capitulated because I do think there is a huge cowardice, but I think that cowardice doesn't, isn't just localised to the university. I think that that is a broader problem that we're facing within society. I mean, we are endlessly, for example, debating what a woman is. I think that these kind of foundational questions that make up the building block of a society are, are massively up for grabs right now. Um, and so it, it's going on in museums and galleries. And, and it's, it's not just locals. I mean, th there's been discussions about, you know, magazines and publishing houses, the new generation of, of um, uh, publishers and, and writers, you know, demanding sensitivity readers and so on. So I think that there's a broader kind of crisis of confidence within um, elite institutions about what their moral purpose is. Um, and they're often kind of scrambling to find new things to 
give them a sense of purpose. And I think the university, that thing has been safety. That thing has been protecting students. Um, but you do see that elsewhere. So I think, so I think that that is, is part of a wider problem. And so I think that the solution will not solely be found in the university. Great, thanks, Ryan. Um, so sort of coming back on, I'd not actually not heard about, because uh, it was before my time at Queen's, the blurred lines um, issue. Luckily, what I would say is that um, you know, student, student uh, union officers are usually elected on a turnout of about, I don't know, 15% maybe, less. Um, so luckily at Queen's, the student union has very little power. Like there are things that they've been campaigning for for years, like sort of bilingual signage at the university that the university's just said, no, whether you agree with it or not, the university has all the power, it's not the, the student union. So I don't know how effective their, their sort of ban on blurred lines would have been. I think it probably wouldn't have taken effect on the wider campus. It would have just probably been in the students union building. Um, in terms of the in terms of the pro life society, obviously there was the controversy about them sort of comparing abortion with the Holocaust on Holocaust Memorial Day. So they are they're, they're definitely pushing it quite a bit, but I, I don't think that it should should be banned. They should um, I think you know they they can express whatever views they want, and it probably is counterproductive to their cause and probably turns more people off than it wins over. One thing I would touch on in terms of um, an issue where it was before it was before I was on on the the debate in society council. We tried to hold a debate on the motion. Um, this house would prosecute soldier F, and that was cancelled. But it was cancelled because um, certain groups threatened the society with sort of physical, like violence, and. So I understand, and I don't want to criticise those who sort of my predecessors on the council were they thought, well, you know, solid, we'll just cancel the debate. I think I might have taken a more sort of hardline stance and, and gone to the university and saying, you know, look, we're getting threatened for holding this debate. Can you provide sort of security to the debate and we're going to go ahead with it? Um, because, you know, I sort of take the line that even if, you know, it might have not been a good idea to sort of put it on in the first place. Once you've crossed the line, once you've gone past the line and said we're going to hold this, and then someone threatens you, I, I think it's it sends it's a bad precedent if you then sort of back down. Mm. Um, so in that context, coming onto the council in the year after, I sort of thought when, when I got a, we got backlash for it, I had in the back of my mind that last year a debate was cancelled because of actual physical threats of violence, um, and therefore. You know the sort of small controversies of meme words online sort of contextualized you know um what i was facing a bit more okay right great let's throw it out to the audience anyone want to ask a question or make a comment it does you don't have to ask a question you can frame it in any way i'm going to make alistair run around with the mic now here down in front uh thank you everybody i had a question based on an experience um basically i did my undergrad in England and London at, in Goldsmiths in 2009 and then I went back to do my masters in 2019 and I seen a huge difference um, in the university as a student and I feel that one of the biggest differences was because of the rise in fees so in 2012, base, or the 2010, the, I was the last year to have a reduced fee and partly the fee was tripled, 
per year because of the state funding taken away from the university. So, and the relationship between the university and the, the uh, student, we became consumers. Like we were given, you know, sheets after lectures on um, how ideology and, and capitalism, you had to like then mark your tutor. Uh, Student satisfaction yeah. surveys, yeah, it's every lecturer's nightmare. Yeah, so, and then when I went back in 2019, suddenly the one thing I would say is there's a difference between the management and the university and the staff. And suddenly we were keeping microaggressions on staff members. So the power is completely taken away from the staff. They are looking after their own safety and the management wants them to be fired so that they can get in zero hour contract people. So for me, I want the question I suppose is, you know, is the, the state of the funding um, and the place as a student as a consumer actually impacting this in a huge way. And then secondly, what was really apparent in COVID, because COVID happened during it, was that these pupils, especially international pupils, who were being so protected around race issues, they still had to pay 23,000 a year, even though we weren't there. And the management didn't give them anything. So it was like the less, ma the less material safety we had, the more important these sort of ideas about free speech and safety were. Um, so it's just this, that's my sort of question and comments yeah. around that. Brilliant, thanks. I'm going to take a few and then we're going to come back to the panel. So panellists, just keep note of stuff. I think we'll go over here. So um, Anaya mentioned the case of Kathleen Stock at Sussex University. For anyone who doesn't know what happened to her, she was a professor of philosophy with a pretty, what I would consider moderate, mild gender critical views. And she was, as Anaya said, hounded out. Um, by the students with with minimal support really from the university what i want to know is how universities should act and strike the balance between you know uh, academic freedom and looking after their staff and but also protecting students rights to protest great thanks yeah that was that's one that i've been thinking was i went to sussex university and i was a rip when i was there and there were lots of people who were very badly behaved in relation to protest and intimidation but the difference was that there wasn't, as Anaya said, uh, there was this very strong presence from academic staff and also campus security who just said, no, get out of here. And so there wasn't that kind of, the dynamic didn't grow past us and our stupid slogans. All right, this gentleman here. Hi, yeah, um, I was glad to actually hear from Ryan that uh, the state of um, free speech in Belfast and Queens is actually much more healthy than it is in many other universities. Uh, I think that's something to be applauded. And I, I think maybe it has to do with the fact that People in Northern Ireland have probably a, um, a, a more robust skin maybe than, than the rest. But it ha I think it had become clear from the panel that the, um, the, the discussion should concentrate as much on the cowardice of the faculty, as, as, as one of the speakers has put it, as on the, the fact that the students are, are, are so, if you like, um, uh, so like snowflakes. <clears throat> and, and have, have developed that kind of uh, attitude about having, wanting to have safe spaces. The, the, the administrations have actually behaved in an in utterly cowardly fashion. They, <clears throat> they have taken fright every time that um, uh, a, a few activists have uh, raised protests about speakers or about issues to be discussed and so on on campus. They've taken fright and they have closed them down. And um, so much so that I think I, I, I remember somebody 
who was speaking at the Battle of Ideas Festival last year in London, I think it was Stephen Blackwood has actually now set up a university somewhere in the US which proclaims the fact that it is in favor of free speech and, and makes no secret of it and it says we will allow any kind of free speech here. And I, I think I recall another university, perhaps it is the University of Austin, which has taken, a, taken up a similar position. I think that's something to be applauded. Yeah, okay, great. Now, that's a really interesting question about, you know, what do we do? If we agree that there is this problem, whether it be consumer students, whether it be faculty, whether, what, what if, if there is a problem, what do you do about it? Do you just say, I'm done with this, set up my own university about free speech? Or do you bring in legislation, as they are um, in the UK, about the higher education bill to force by law, universities to sign up to an idea of free speech, or should it be something like more cultural change that doesn't have any kind of um, bills or legislation behind it? All right, I'm going to take uh, two more, and then I'm, I'm coming back out. So if we go right to the back there. Uh, how are you doing? Very interesting so far. Uh, one of the notes about the, the culture of, of free speech in universities is uh, how in the UK it's not quite as bad, or at least doesn't appear as bad, as it is in the US. And, uh, for example, uh, the, the Berkeley Free Speech Week a few years ago, which was organized or headed by a particularly controversial figure, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who I don't know if anyone's heard of him. Um, at, at the time, that was shut down by rioters, so it was, and there was massive amounts of damage done uh, before the, uh, the events had actually taken place. Uh, I wonder... Do you have any comments on whether or not in the UK that things would get that bad and that uh, free speech might be that compromised uh, or that controversial even uh, here? Or does the cultural context of the UK prevent that more so than, than what it might in the US? Great, thanks. And lastly, the uh, girl sat next, next to you. Did you have a question? Yeah. I was just wondering, it, do you see a difference between free speech and hate speech? And if so, what are the differences? Uh, very very simply put, and very important, um, what, what are the boundaries, if there are any? I mean, uh, Ryan, you, maybe I'll start with you, Ryan. Um, and any, you, know, you can't answer everything now, that's impossible. So just kind of two minutes each um, to come back on anything you want. But you mentioned you know, the Pro-Life Society kind of engaging in sort of a whiff of Holocaust denial or something like that. Is there, is, should there be dividing lines? And anything else you want to pick up on? Two minutes is there's lots to go it's through. It's impossible, but give uh, it a go. Um, okay, so in terms of the difference between free speech and hate speech within within our society, you know, like I said, there were rules about sort of um, you know students to, to sort of foster a, 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 an atmosphere in which students, you know, uh, it's a sort of welcoming atmosphere for the society. Um, you know, there are rules about sort of you know you, you can't. It's sort of like parliamentary rules in a sense where you can't just attack someone else. So, for example, you know, someone in the society could get up and say, I personally am against same-sex marriage because of X reasons, um, but, you know, they couldn't sh shout a sort of homophobic slur at someone uh, across the room who's, who's, you know, a member of the LGBT community. I think that that's the sort of distinction that we draw within the society. And, you know, it's not a free speech absolutist sort of position, but it is, I'd say, um, allows for unpopular views to be expressed um, without, you know, making people, you know, uh, extremely uncomfortable. Um, on the point that, that Daniel raised about um, um, 
about the, the situation in the United States. Obviously, Ellie, you know, or have encountered Milo Yiannopoulos before. He's actually <laughs> now selling a bad quality jewellery on the US equivalent of QVC. <laughs> so it's a, he's a bit of a lesson in that if you just let these people with bad views be, they kind of peter themselves out. That, that. That's, that's true. <laughs> he, he sort of got himself into trouble. Um, but in terms of, you know, that was obviously a security, like a situation of where, you know, the police and sort of university security should have done a sort of better job of, you know, managing the situation. It's like the, the one I said before about when the society was threatened over the soldier F debate. There, you know, the, the purpose of police is to, to protect sort of fundamental rights and free speech is part of that. And if um, free speech is being, um, you know, attacked on campus with physical threats of violence, then that's where the sort of security of the university and also the PSNI should sort of step in. Okay, great, thanks. Anaya, anything you want to pick up on? Um, uh, a few things. Firstly, I think universities are probably the safest place that anyone will ever be. You know, that there's not, you know, rampant, you know, Nazis roaming around. And I think that there is this kind of boogeyman that I think a lot of people that um, strongly oppose free speech create about perhaps what will happen if students are allowed to engage with a wide range of ideas. And I think, generally speaking, the only time more controversial figures are, are brought on is if in that particular moment they are politically significant for whatever reason and it gives an opportunity to challenge them. And I think, generally speaking, students have the moral uh, capacity to be able to create a panel discussion and, and think about who is the right person to put forward that perspective. Um, I mean, my line generally is, is incitement to violence, but, and I, but I think all ideas should be debated. Um, in terms of your point about uh, the fact with tuition fees, I think it is an um, important point in relation to, I think, how, again, as I said earlier, the, the purpose of university seems to have changed. Um, and I think that part of that is that consumerist model um, where it's about getting a job rather than actually the value of knowledge, um, of education in and of itself. And I think that part of the tuition fees may well contribute to that mentality that it's much more transactional than actually something that you should be very grateful to be in an institution that has um, been able to create uh, knowledge. Um, in terms of the comment about uh, focusing on whether or not students are snowflakes, I do think there is some snowflakery, but I, I, I think they are socialised that way. Um, I think that uh, young people in particular in our society are constantly flattered. You know, this, it, just because a view is is held widely amongst young people that are seen as inherently good. You know, we always hear, oh, but young people think this, as if that means that that must be a good thing or that that is morally superior to other views, generally speaking. So I do think we are in a, we do live in a broader culture where there is a fetishization of young people and what they think, which I think often leads young people to come to the forefront of a debate. And so many students have, I've come across, have just never been told no. Um, and, and a lot of our adults retreat and are often you know, fearful of, 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 of young people and a lot of their views. So I, I, I do think that adults, institutions should take responsibility. And you, and you mentioned the University of Buckingham. I think it's a great example of what can happen when freedom of speech, tolerance and open dialogue are institutionalised as central to the purpose of university. And it really does create free, free thinking, open-minded students ready to engage with ideas. So I think that, that should be really replicated across across the board. Great, thanks, Naya. And Suzanne, anything you want to pick up on? You know, maybe you want 
Have you ever had to fill out, get have one of those student satisfaction surveys levied at you? I know that all my academic friends, it's like their nightmare. Um, but the, the point about, maybe the point about the consumers, but also maybe if you wanted to take on this idea of, fat, you know, someone called it kind of cowardice in the faculty, but the, but the tension of, you know, if, if uh, university staff are being put in this position where they're both having to answer to their empl the employers, but also to um, increasing demands from students, how does that affect the ability to say to someone in a seminar, you're completely wrong on this, or that, you know, that essay was terrible, or whatever it is. Um, what, how are you feeling in relation to your power as an academic, maybe from, in relation to the past? Um, I, I think these are all really great questions, and there's a few themes here emerging regarding the commercialization of education uh, and how it has had a really negative effect on free speech at universities in the US and how this seems to be becoming more of a problem here. So I definitely think the tuition fees thing has played a central role in this. And that's not the students' fault. It, they're paying a heck of a lot of money for what they're getting. And so they kind of want the student experience, the customer experience. Um, my colleagues who have worked in the US uh, and since you know moved back to the UK to work at institutions here um, have told me absolutely horrific stories and not just uh, relating to these contentious issues about race or gender or, or political issues, but the pressure that you're under to give students a certain mark or else you get threatened. Um, there's no backup from the administration at all in these places. They, uh, you know, students, if they're not happy with their mark, will go to the dean who immediately will, you know, sanction you or pressure you to change the mark because people are paying a lot of money. Again, it's not the student's fault. They're paying in the US crazy amounts of money for their degree. And we don't want to get to that sort of situation here. Um, well, that grade inflation is a, is a big thing, that there's so many more people getting A's and or whatever, there's the top marks now than were in 20, exactly. 10 or 20 years ago. Exactly. It's, so I think that um, fees are a huge problem. You know, I'm not able to solve the issue of you know, how we do pay for university, but I do think if we really care about um, educating the nation properly, we need to look at the cost of university and the effect that has on an education. Um, in regards to the, uh, the, the Kathleen Stock issue, uh, I mean, it's really difficult for uh, philosophers to talk about. There's a lot of um, disagreement about, about it among philosophers, but I'll compare it to another example. So philosophers for a long time have got themselves into hot water over the years. So has anyone heard of Peter Singer? Yeah, so Peter Singer was once called the most dangerous man in the world. He's an ethicist from Australia who, in the late 90s, had got a job um, at one of the Ivy Leagues in the US. And he is a utilitarian, and he's uh, put forward some views which were considered to be controversial at the time, that were um, in, not in favour of abortion, but, you know, abortion is morally justifiable in his view. Um, he's a big animal rights advocate. But some of his views relating to personhood which is a particular category of moral status that, um, on his account, fetuses don't have, but lots of animals do have due to their higher cognitive functioning. That caused a lot of problems, um, particularly among uh, religious groups in the US, um, which, which led to him 
uh, facing insane sort of security concerns when he joined the university. So um, he uh, they lost a lot. Of, the university lost a lot of funding because of his views. He needed a, a security um, panic button in his office. And uh, you know, every day he would turn up to lectures. They would need to be cancelled for you know, for the first while after he arrived because of the protests that were happening. It dissipated over time. You know, the activists kind of forgot about it. But I think that what really helped him was that the administration stood by him and allowed him to to have his views. He, he wasn't abusive. He didn't advocate for genocide or anything like that. Um, he was just conducting his research, and some people disagreed with it. And that's that's what administrations need to do in these sorts of cases. Great, thanks. Anaya, you wanted to make yeah, a very quick d point. D just very quickly, what, what I would just say is that what is frustrating for the Kathleen Sock situation is that being intimidated for views that are widely held within society. So I think that one of the problems I had when I was at university is that many debates that were going on within wider society around Brexit, around Trump, around all sorts of issues, there was a particular orthodoxy. So I actually think that that's part of the problem, that students are not actually being able to be allowed to engage properly with the conversations that are being had within wider society because of a lot of the orthodoxies on campus. So I think that that is um, undermining the student experience, so to speak, as well. The kind of campus bubble effect where you don't really know what's going on outside the walls. Okay, let's have a last whip round of questions um, and then we'll finish up so you have the yeah, um Yeah, I maybe echo just the, the final point you, you made. Um, I think self-censorship is fundamental to the issues concerned. Um, I've seen it directly. Uh, as a student, I also know somebody who's a um, well-positioned um, in university, so as a staff member, has also said that she, she just keeps her mouth shut on certain issues. Um, uh, so I think that that's quite a subtle thing in terms of, I think you used the, some phrase there about how people are socialized. I think that's quite integral to, uh, to the issue. Like people um, in the context of education not actually uh, being being equipped mm -hmm. to think in different ways. So even if there's like a, a suspicion that an ideological agenda is being opposed on you, you're not being equipped um, to actually kind of come back on it. So it's the kind of irony that uh, of this kind of double meaning of critical. Mm -hmm. In fact, you don't have the critical tools to challenge the paradigm that's being imposed. Uh, uh, and so-called critical theory is, you know, in a sense, it really just stand, it's just a, a form of an orthodoxy a set of received opinions. Could I very briefly just mention, yeah. and um, I was a student in 2017, 16-17, uh, uh, in Glasgow, and just, it kind of echoes again some of the language that came up there. Uh, a new handbook was drafted while warning students on the Masters of Fine Art program there not to make work that was inappropriate, offensive, disreputable, insensitive. So I think this thing about how institutions are caving, there's also staff members who are, who are trying to kind of, you know, move with the times and impose from above so that they're kind of meeting the new kind of orthodoxy halfway. Um, we resisted, um, the majority of students, not everybody, but the majority of, stu of the students signed a petition, wrote a peti petition requesting the removal of these directives mm -hmm. from the new handbook. So I think that was like a, a really interesting case in point of like directly something that happened, which was moving against free speech in, a, in, the, in, in arts education. Lovely, thanks. I hope you're staying around for our third debate on can culture survive the culture wars, because it'd be very interesting to hear more about that. The lady right next to you there, yeah. 
Thank you. Um, I'm actually old enough to remember when students didn't have to pay fees at all, and I'm one of them. In fact, we got a grant. So um, we really are talking Just along. to make us all jealous. Absolutely. They're the golden ca Camelot. But I would say about Camelot was that students didn't accept um, controversial speakers onto campus back then either. Um, I was at Nottingham University, which wasn't famed for its radicalism in the 80s, but we were there during the miners' strike, and the conservative students' organisation specialised in inviting controversial speakers. Um, and the socialist workers' students' organisation, I don't know if they still exist, but they, back then they were the ones who enjoyed a good riot. So every time um, the Conservatives invited Norman Tebbit or the Minister for Coal or anybody like that, there was a riot. No, it wasn't like full scale, but I mean, some, the police had to come, doors were smashed. Most times the, the, um, uh, the event was cancelled, in the middle of it quite often because of what was going on. And that was the reality of student life. And it has been probably back till the, since the 60s, you know, students actually do object and, uh, and have always done so and have prevented speakers from appearing. You know, so I think it's important to remember that some of this stuff that's going on is actually part of student life, like your colleague was saying over there. And, you know, for some of it's the only opportunity we ever have to riot. We never get to do it again in a nice, safe space. So, you know, it is, it is worth bearing with the change, I think, is the, the, what we've been saying about how the academics have been abandoned by, by their administration and management system. But to say students have always done this, or certainly for the past 60 years, have gone out and really objected to who was invited. And it's very healthy in that way. Yeah, yeah, thanks. That's very interesting. Just pass the microphone there. And, the, you know, the difference between should you be having ruckuses on, you know, maybe not smashing doors, but a bit of a fight intellectually on campus, is that, you know, no, should we be saying that that's not allowed and everything should just be safe? Or is it that actually people are worried about having that? that kind of to and fro, your point? I think um, for people that are more involved in activism, certainly the more expectation for a lot of young people here is, and Ryan, you'll know what I'm gonna be referring to, is that um, if you're involved in sort of the activism sector, there's this sort of intimidation where you're expected to follow along with whatever the current method is. So to give an example is, um, Doug Beatty's obviously his tweets came out recently. Um, quite interesting to see them come out. Um, and to someone that was, I run a mental health charity and what was expected, we had Doug Beatty attending an event the week after and we were, we were told um, by current members of the SU, um, basically I was told, go out publicly on Twitter, for example, and condemn what he said. I was like, no, because that means Doug Beatty will then probably cancel his attendance at our event. Um, and I got a lot of hate online for that. What I think sort of hasn't really come up yet is about off-campus discipline, I think that's something that's been talked a lot about during COVID too, is the online aspect of it all, of all free speech, and it's like, certainly for a lot of people, they think they have this massive audience, and in reality, whatever they're gonna put out probably doesn't make much of a difference of what the actual end goal is gonna be. Um, and I got a lot of online abuse, and have been for a long period of time, for not going out and saying publicly things that I perhaps agree with privately, just because I know that the result will be the events that I'm hosting will be cancelled because of people that, you know, you've got to, if you're going to invite someone to an event, you don't want to basically tell them that you hate them, slag them off before you go. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, thanks, very interesting. Yes, far away. Very quick, just do you think universities have the in-house skill to sort of mediate these disputes? Do you think they have the tools to try and decide where they should fall on the free speech argument? Because sometimes it seems like they're um, highly paid managers and they've got a team of people who are good at managing and getting grants, getting funds, counting the, the beans, but maybe they don't know how to 
mediate these sort of disputes. That's my impression anyway. Okay, yeah, thanks. And I mean, that's why the government is over there, right at the back there, this lady there. That's why the government's putting in this higher education bill. One of the reasons why, because the suggestion is you can't leave it up to universities anymore. They don't know what they're doing. So we've got to legislate, which is another part of the debate. Far away. Um, I just wanted to say, I think part of the issue is it's very easy to call it free speech and it's very easy to talk in this way. For a lot of students on campus, I think a big thing that I see is fear, especially from students who would be more marginalised in a wider society. There's a prevailing fear that if they don't keep the pressure on the university to keep an eye on things like this, you know, they're worried that it'll spiral. And it's been remarked that the university doesn't really offer support where they don't find it profitable to. And if it's no longer profitable to stay on the side of the people who are calling for things to be cancelled and calling for things to have an eye kept on them, if it's no longer profitable to be on their side, then there's a fear that there won't be support. Because as much as it can be said that campus is safe, and like I wouldn't deny that especially Queen's does a brilliant job of looking after its students, there is always this underlying fear and there are always students who will try and push boundaries. And I think then I would wonder, do you think a bigger push for free speech should be on students to accept that there will always be risk? Or should Queen's and wider universities make a bigger push to keep a stronger eye on who's pushing the boundaries rather than just instilling boundaries? Okay, great, thanks. That's, that's a really great question because I don't think we should underestimate how upsetting it can be if you find yourself at the wrong end of a of a spat about this and if you ask and if you either get online trolled or whatever it is if you are a student who tries to put your head above the parapet and get it bitten off um, I'm not trying to do down the fact that that can be that can put you off for life ever trying to open your mouth again so the question of how to deal with that rather than just calling people snowflakes maybe to to recognize that that is a difficult thing to do in the current context okay i've not left you any time at all so rather than two minutes you've got a minute and a half each um and just come back on anything you want um or leave us with any points and we'll go in the order that we began with so ryan um, so much to come back on, but in terms of, I think I'd sort of um, challenge the idea of that, you know, self-censorship is a problem, as I, I mentioned in, in sort of my opening remarks, but also I think lots of students often who maybe have unpopular views, because they're going to get pushback from it naturally and maybe sometimes be disliked for what they say, you know, you don't have a right to, to be liked, um, you know, feel that they can't express certain views. But, I mean, I think as long as you, and this is my experience, I, I express unpopular views sometimes, as long as you do it in a way that's actually civil and sort of respectful of the other person's view, I found for the most time, especially in Northern Ireland, people don't really have a problem with you unless you give them a reason to have a, a problem with you. I, like for, for one example um, I'd just give is, um, a few years ago in the society, um, the Institute of the Policy before I was on council to force people to tell their pronouns to uh, when they were speaking in a debate, and people know what guess what my pronouns are. Everyone knows what my pronouns are, and I think it was sort of pointless to to, to ask me. So any time, like rather than kick up a fuss and, and be this sort of like provocateur student who just sort of manufactures controversy when there's no point. When people asked, when they, when I was going forward for a debate and they said, can you tell us your name, your, your 
your pronouns and um, what position you're speaking in, I'd just say, well, my name's Ryan Oe, and I'm speaking at this position, and you're just not saying anything. You know, I, I think there, there is on the other, on the flip side, there are sort of students who, you know, are another sort of snowflake who get annoyed by any sort of um, sort of woke, uh, you know, uh, I suppose sort of policies on on campus and kick up a fuss about it when actually you can you can print you can have a principled stand like I did that I'm not going to say what my pronouns are because people know without actually just causing a fuss if I may just go over a few different points as well just quickly yeah quickly uh, in terms of the cowardice of the university that we've been hearing about um I actually again think I don't, I'm not trying to stand up for Queens because I think Queens does treat its students terribly but I think Queens has actually been all right on this there was in my first year the Israeli ambassador came to speak at the university and whatever you think about, we don't want to get into the whole Israel-Palestine conflict, we also had the Palestinian ambassador, but the, a group of students tried to block the Israeli ambassador from, from speaking and block the entrance and Queen sort of let him in through the back door and still held the event and sort of allowed the students to have the protest, allowed the, the talk to go ahead. Um, and I think that was handled fairly well. So um, yeah, main takeaway, um, we need students who are sort of willing to uh, you know, uh, put up with the backlash that they're inevitably going to get and still, you know, um, stand up for sort of open debate on campus. Okay, thanks very much, Ryan. Um, Suzanne? Um, yeah, I think that um, one thing that we can maybe take away from all this is that, you know, students um, and activists uh, more broadly want to have these difficult discussions, but perhaps there aren't the right sort of um, avenues for them to do that. Obviously, you know, Ryan's talking about the society that allows for that sort of thing to happen, but perhaps there needs to be more kind of opportunities um, for these things to be thrashed out. They do happen in, in the in tutorials and in lectures, but, you know, things are really time sensitive there and, and you need to get through all the material, you need to get through all the readings. Um, and, you know, you nearly always run out of time in class. Like, I'm sure anyone who's been a student has, has had that experience. Um, so, so perhaps we need to be more creative. I, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but we need to be more creative in terms of providing opportunities and spaces uh, for students and maybe in wider society, things like this, of course, are great. Um, for people to have difficult conversations and to do it in a way that um, does have limits on it, of course. There's always going to be limits on... Uh, you know, abusive or threatening behaviour. But beyond that, you need to let people make mistakes. You know, one thing I, I, that hasn't actually come up um, today is that lots of students, um, you know, they come uh, from different sorts of backgrounds. Northern Ireland, lots of our students are from Northern Ireland. And they haven't even perhaps met someone from the other side before, never mind someone from uh, a completely different country. Uh, and so they might not be completely up to speed with the most kind of woke language. And so they're going to make mistakes in the classroom and that's okay, right? There's no absolute right way of uh, approaching an issue and they shouldn't be worried about saying the wrong thing. Um, there should be you know, space there to, to maybe say, actually, I, I don't think, I don't know, immigration is a good idea for our country or whatever it is. Um, and they should be allowed to do that and to explore that and talk about it with everyone else. Uh, and some students feel really uh, alienated 
by kind of what they perceive to be a high-level activist sort of discussion that they can't really understand that's so completely at odds with their real experience of the world and the issues that they actually face. Um, so I think that we need to, to that's, you know, we need to keep that in mind, you know, if we really care about diversity, think about where these students are coming from, uh, what kind of experiences are they having, and, you know, do they really kind of believe in this sort of, um, you know, woke language that perhaps is only known by a very select elite few? Um, so the, I'm, I'm very positive that we can we can have these sorts of conversations in, in these sorts of uh, diverse spaces in a way that suits everyone. Thank you, Ananaya. Um, I, I think I'd pick up slightly on what you said, Ryan. I think you know, if if I was us my pronouns, I probably would kick up a fuss because I do think that, I, I'm not sure it's snowflakery reverse, I mean, maybe a little bit, but I do think that there is a danger on university campuses and within these institutions of not exploiting, but perhaps instrumentalising their kind of unprecedented access to young people to make ideas that are highly contested within society seem normal. And I think that that is part of those things. So I think within wider society, most people don't you know, ask each other their pronouns and things like that. And it's clearly a widespread debate that there isn't consensus on what the answer to it is yet. So I think that when it is um, adopted as a policy, I think it's using access to young people to make normal something that I think is up, uh, clearly significantly up for debate. And I think that what, what is different about perhaps the free speech controversies that happened decades before, I think has been touched upon. And I think it is the way that it is very top down. So just slightly different topic on the on that kind of trans discussion i mean that there's the the swimmer um in in america right now one of the st uh, student swimmers actually spoke out and wrote, wrote an open letter but the actual student association the national one took a position um saying that they were going to make sure that um it was trans inclusive so that's very top down, something that is actually open to debate and is being discussed within wider society. So I think that is different. And also I think that the, there has been a slippery slope. I mean, I've looked at some of the so-called no platforming policies that happened in the kind of 80s and 90s. And oftentimes it, I would have disagreed with it then, but it, even, it was Nazis and fascists. And now it's extended way, way, way beyond Nazis and fascists. It's, you know, anyone that veers even slightly away from, from certain orthodoxies. So I do think that um, in order to solve the problem, as I alluded to, I think it's a, a, a wider society issue of regaining confidence in making the case for freedom in ways that resonate with the issues and problems that we have today. And I think that that um, will hopefully have an effect across the board. Can you join me in thanking our panel, please? Thanks for listening to the podcast of ideas. You can support us by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review. Check out our feeds for recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival Archive and other Academy of Ideas events.